All right, guys, welcome to the Track Quest podcast. This is Bob Borland. Uh, got on the line, James Orr. How you doing tonight, James? Awesome, Bob. I'm super glad to see you uh, took the reins on this one. Yeah, this is this is a nightmare, but uh, it kind of worked out. Uh, James made me kind of, I kind of help him usually, so he kind of pushed me into the front tonight because he hadn't really talked to the guests we had. So who do we have on here tonight? Uh, this guy is a total stud out of Montana. Yeah, Dick's been around forever. He's been building lo- bows longer than we've been alive, and, you know, doing this podcast and talking to all the big wigs out there and the people that have been doing it forever. Shoot. Dick, Dick seems to have influence in some way or another on everybody we've talked to that got started in bow building or started in bow hunting. And, and, and man, from this interview, he's just a super, super good guy. A lot of fun, had some great stories. Uh, I think you guys will really enjoy it. Yeah, man. He's the OG of traditional bow hunting. Yep. Yep, he is the man for sure. Yeah, yeah, I think I think that's a, a uh, the slogan we should give him: the original gangster, <laughs> yeah, Dick Robertson. <laughs> yeah, he, what did he say? He said, "Oh, you guys haven't had a radical on here yet." So, yeah, so some of you guys might get a little offended on this. Uh, put down your purse; it'll be okay, and yeah. uh, just just bear with us. Dick Robertson's on the line. Yeah, uh, this guy. Uh, I mean, he, he's going to take you guys to uh, Siberia and to the top of the mountains at 14,000 feet after Bighorn. So, uh, enjoy. All right. All right. Hey, you guys live out there and out, out in, uh, where do you live? Oregon. Okay. Yeah. We're on the e- edge of the world. Okay. Um, what's this podcast like on? What is this yeah. a traditional oriented one yep. or? Yep. It's called the trad quest. So it's all traditional archery podcast. Uh, a whole bunch of guys that are just trad guys and we're just trying to promote traditional archery in a positive light and hear some hunting stories and stuff like that. Oh, so you haven't had a radical guy on yet. <laughs> I like, I like the sound of that Dick. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, you know, I've been in this game a long time and I've watched the deterioration of it and stuff and, you know, I'm not going to hold anything back. I'm going to say how it is, and I'm just warning you that, I guess. I love Let it. Um, Let it rip. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, if any of you guys that listen to this don't know who Dick Robertson is, um, you must be must be pretty young or just started yeah. bow hunting because Dick's been yeah. around forever. Um, you know, somebody that I looked up to when I was getting into the sport when I was a kid, so... It's our. It's kind of an honor to have him on here, and uh, Dick. Maybe for those guys that that have lived under a rock, you could just kind of give them a background of where you started and when you started in traditional archery. Okay. Well, I was born in Wolf Point, Montana, in '53, uh, I guess, and that's an Indi- There's an Indian reservation there, and my dad was building houses and. We moved to Glasgow shortly thereafter, and when I was about six, I just couldn't stand anymore. I wanted my dad to build me a bow, and the reason I did is because all my buddies were wanted to be cowboys. For for some reason, I was wanting to be an Indian. <laughs> and so dad built me this bow, and what he did is he went out in the backyard, got a cottonwood, cottonless cottonwood branch off a tree, used a chalk line. He was a carpenter and uh, put me a string on there, made me square arrows, notched them with a bandsaw, and 
you know, the ends were blunt and everything, and I was like, oh, I can't sharpen them or nothing like that. Well, you know how long it was before I had some sharpened. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, I, I remember that uh, it must have been the start of winter or something, but we had an early snow, and the rain was, the snow was dripping off the neighbor's roof, and a bunch of cedar waxwings were coming in there graveling up, you know. And so I got my bow, and I stalked across 10th Avenue South and went in front of the garage and snuck around the corner and sent an arrow into that mass of cedar wax wings, and I got one. <laughs> so I've been at it for quite a while. But uh, the thing that kind of really disappointed me was I wanted to be a taxidermist, too, and I put that cedar wax wing in the freezer and i don't know a couple of years later or something i was ready to be a taxidermist i guess i went to looking for it my mom had thrown it away well she's been dead for about six years and i'm still pissed at her <laughs> oh that's awesome i was born lucky i was born in eastern montana don't look like much but it is so rich in game we would go out there and you know my dad was an avid gun hunter he couldn't walk so we did a lot of just road hunting and my mom hunted and my brother hunted and stuff and it was nothing to go driving and in the first hour of daylight see two or three hundred deer. So, you know, we never would shoot any because we wanted it to last longer. And I guess we turned into trophy hunters, but not because, you know, we were into trophies that much. But you just would usually wait till the very end of the season. And so my mom and dad, they took me everywhere. I mean, my dad didn't go hunting with anybody else. Mm -hmm. He went hunting with his family, you know. Yeah. So I got, I had a paper out and earned enough money to buy a Shakespeare Wonder Bow when I was about 12. And they opened up the Missouri River breaks for the first year. These elk had never been hunted. And there was about 100 head, and they all gathered together. Well, everybody got it. one of them little 58-inch uh, bear super magnums. Or, and then uh, the cowboys had their horses with those and then the guys from Glasgow had these the Honda Trail 90s were popular yeah. and on opening morning everybody just converged on these elk and I was with my mom because my dad couldn't walk and I saw these elk were kind of being chased towards us they're all in one big herd every elk in the place I thought but anyway mom couldn't run to keep up with me and she says oh, I'll just meet you back at the truck well I went running over there and this hundred head elk is running in front of me and I never got there in time. But when I went back to the truck, Mom said that just after I left, two big six-point bull elk came up and just looked at her. Mm. So, uh, but later in that season, I ended up actually shot an elk, uh, cow elk, and it was a long recovery, but actually killed a cow elk when I was 12 years old. And then I think it was, I had five dry years, and I ended up killing a nice 30-inch mule deer with a 45-pound bear grizzly, wood arrow, bear head. And then, of course, the elk was the, the big thing. And when I was 20, I got a real nice 7 by 7 right out of um, Hamilton. And I was so excited. I was covered in blood, you know. I mean, it was a big bull and stuff, and I gutted it out. My mom was working downtown, and I went running in there and... Gave her a big hug. 
anybody, everybody's looking at me like I just murdered somebody. <laughs> it was all bloody and stuff, but I was so excited, you know. I mean, shit, nobody killed an elk in the Bitterroot Valley with a bow, I thought at that time. But actually, this guy named Harold Whitley had killed one the year before, so that was pretty exciting. And, you know, I just, I kind of went from, uh, after that, I, I don't know, I, I shot fedora bows, Mike fedora bows. And then the compounds started getting popular, and I thought, man, you know, this is, I don't like these things. I shot the second one Tom Jennings ever made. A guy out of Derby brought it up, and I shot that. And, uh, you know, I thought, man, this thing's terrible. This is this is heavy. It was just gross, you know, and it's like, who would ever want to shoot something like that? <laughs> but then it got popular, and so I'm sitting there shooting a recurve, and I thought, what the heck, you know? I'm going to go try a longbow. I mean, I've always thought archery is about challenge and making it harder. I'm going to try a longbow. And uh, I did, you know. I got one from John Schultz. Well, the first ones I got were from uh, Ted Eakin. Another little funny story, side story is when I went to get that from Ted, I'd never had any instruction in archery, and I had about a 33-inch draw length because I just pulled the bull back as far as I could. <laughs> back behind my head. And he kind of made, you know, he wasn't being critical, but he says most people have an anchor point. And I was like, you know, stubborn, what the hell, you know. But anyway, Ted Eakin gave me an anchor point, so I started anchoring, right? And so then I had some success, of course, with... Uh, the longbows, I mean, at that time, the woods in western Montana, you you didn't see people, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you might see some guys on the road, road hunting or something like that, but if you got off, you never saw anybody. And the elk here were a lot easier to call in. You know, I called in elk with just a rubber blunt or uh, the little, uh, like, one-inch plastic pipe bugles. You know, that's what we used to use, and it used to work good. But then they got a little bit smarter than that. But yeah. <laughs> uh, So anyway, I got to the point where, uh, you know, I wanted another challenge. What am I going to do next? And I got a, um, Saxton Pope's book and read in there about how to make an English longbow. And, of course, nobody was selling staves or anything, really. I got a hold of Earl Ulrich, who was selling you with laminations, and he sent me a a laminated yew wood stave. It had like two layers of uh, sapwood and it was four layers of heartwood. And I didn't know what I was doing, you know. I mean, I, well, for a long time I didn't know what I was doing with cell posts because I'd try stringing them up when they were 100 pounds and so they always followed the string quite a bit. But <laughs> And then I got a hold of Don Adams and he gave got me a couple of uh, good staves. I mean, you know, I thought they were good, but in retrospect, they weren't that great. But anyway, I ended up breaking a couple of them, and that was back when they were worth like a hundred bucks. And uh, I finally got one that I shot probably a hundred times. And I had a good friend that came over, and he'd been seeing all the other ones blow up or whatever. And I was in the living room of my house, and I said, "No, nah, this one's okay," you know. And I pulled that thing back, and the upper limb just exploded. So I had about. 75 toothpicks stuck in the top of our roof or in the in the ceiling there but uh, so I ended up actually meeting uh, Dwayne Gardner told me about the guy that was building bows and his name was uh, Dale Jasperson in Missoula, Montana he ended up also uh, helping Monty Morvac and 
Brian Serge out of Missoula, you know, they kind of, he helped them, you know, learn how to build bows too, but he kind of took me under his wing and he was a perfectionist. You know, he was making telescopes and he was, um, a gem cutter. And so when he was teaching me how to make laminated bows, you know, that perfection was instilled in me right there. You know, I've been like a, a roofer before. You know, it ain't take a, doesn't take a lot of perfection for that. But. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I, I started making laminated bows. And, of course, I knew Gene Wenzel. I knew Paul Brunner. And those guys just, you know, ended up getting a bow from me. And they hauled them around to all these seminars that they were doing back at that time. And I think that first year I started, I made 50 bows. And two years later, I quit roofing and been full-time ever since what year was that when you started well i think i always say 78 is when i went full-time i had you know piddled around with some self bows and stuff like that before but and you know i started making my own arrows when i was probably i don't know a freshman in high school or whatever and uh of course then you know i i you know I, i did pretty good there and stuff but my heart was still with the self bows and i i kept making self bows all along and I would say 95% of my hunting has been done with self bows. Kind of feel self bows have a soul, you know. I mean, (laughs) you're supposed to build them yourself. (laughs) (laughs) So you build all these laminated bows, but you still hunt with a self bow, huh? Yeah, oh yeah, they're the ones I love. I mean, the laminated ones, they're, they, you know, they're great. They're beautiful. I like making them and stuff, but, you know, the self-bows are cool. You know, I, we had that Montana bow jam here this year, and I don't know, I think there were 75 or 100 people that ended up building bows there, and, I mean, yeah, those are awesome. real bows. <laughs> yeah, for sure. You know, yeah. it's, just a, it's like a manufacturing process with the laminated bows, where with the self-bow, it's an art form. For sure. Yeah, we, we've had... Uh... We've had several different boyers on the podcast, and and your name has come up uh, plenty of times. I think Alan Boyce had referenced that uh, you gave him uh, uh, the idea to build a reflex deflex bow when he was just building them straight. You kind of had introduced him to that design, and um, we just did one with a gentleman from Alberta, Canada, uh, Bert Freelink. And he does self bows, and he he had uh, brought you up uh, in conversation about bow building, and and in, you know giving him some uh, inspiration in that department. And uh, boy, your, your name's come up s- many times uh, amongst some of these guys that we've talked to that are into the bow building. Yeah, well, when I started, you know, there were some guys, and I'm not going to say names or anything, but uh, you know, there was like maybe five or six guys and they're pretty tight lipped, you know, they, and, and we're misleading somewhat, you know, and luckily Dale die. And I kind of started about the same time and we could, you know, refer and learn with each other and stuff, but I never held anything back. Anybody ever called me and asked me any question. I, you know, would try and help them as much as I could still will, because I can't make, everybody's bow and look what's happened i mean this stuff is going crazy there are so many i mean shit there's more traditional bowyers in the world now than when i started there was traditional bow hunters (laughs) (laughs) you know all 
the foreign countries that are, are rebuilding the bows that they used to. When I started, 40 years ago, they weren't doing none of that. Yeah, so um, I started off, you know, like everybody with a compound, and then I moved to a recurve. And um, I believe you were at the um, the PBS banquet in Portland, Oregon, about seven or eight years ago, weren't you? Pretty yeah. sure. Yeah, yeah, I'm positive, yeah. Uh, I met you there, and I was pretty much my first year into traditional archery. I was meeting, I met you and the Wenzels, and I met all these guys, but I didn't even really realize who I was meeting. Um, so after, you know, a year or two later, I was like, oh, yeah. And you actually took me out into the back where they had a target, and let me shoot one of your uh, longbows. And that was actually the first longbow that I've ever shot. And, um, you know, now it's all I shoot is longbows. And I'm getting ready to build my first self-bow. So a lot has changed. Yeah. So uh, thank you for that. Oh, no problem. And, you know, that's one of the beauties about traditional archery is the people with it. Um, they're so helpful. They're, they don't have big egos. You know, the big-name guys, they're not, you know, strutting their stuff. You know, Gwen <laughs> St. Charles would talk to anybody. Uh, Fred Aswell, you know what I mean. They're just yeah. no yeah. high and mighty, yeah. you know, wearing cowboy boots and a, and a cowboy hat mentality, you know. The, yeah, the, the traditional archery uh, community is uh, very humble and very approachable. And it all that's another thing besides of how much fun – and the skill set of becoming a traditional um, archer and hunter, uh, the community also just sucked me in. I mean, everybody is just uh, so awesome. Well, let me tell you a story here. Um, Jay Massey, of course, he died, well, this will be the 20 years ago. And, you know, he didn't have insurance and had to go through a lot of surgery and stuff. And, you know, I helped kind of get the ball rolling on, on getting, you know, their traditional community support him and stuff. And I mean, there was just unbelievable outcropping of, of support. And then I guess it maybe 16, 17 years ago, my wife ended up having breast cancer and, uh, we didn't have insurance, you know, and here again, these people got together, uh, Don Thomas and, and, you know, some of the other people. And it was unbelievable how much money they raised to where we didn't have to pay a penny for any of that stuff. And I don't know. It's just, it's really cool. And that's, that's very cool. I'm, I'm happy with that. The other thing, you know, like I'm happy I'm, or I'm proud. These are the things I'm proud of. I'm proud of that where you were saying that, you know, uh, I helped the other bowyers. Okay. Another thing I'm real proud of is donating bows to bow hunting groups to where, you know, they could further the cause. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just just the rewards aren't the money. If I could have bartered my way through 40 years of bow building, I'd have done it. <laughs> um, there's not a lot of money in it. Some people think there is or for some reason think there is, but there isn't. You know, I know most all these bowyers, and there ain't none of them rich. Yeah. But it's a love of the sport and stuff. So, anyway, yeah. I just wanted to talk about that because they, they the, the the whole bunch come out in support, and and it was un, re, very rewarding to know that you hung around with that many nice people. Yeah, absolutely, and it seems like it was uh, a great community of people to raise your your uh, kids around. Um, I know 
uh, I'm really enjoying raising my my uh, three young girls uh, around this community, and uh, your your son and daughter seem to have turned out pretty well uh, with the upbringing you gave them. I kind of follow them through social media, and it's pretty cool. Oh, we're just like everybody else in the world is chaotic and <laughs> as you can get. You know, we're <laughs> I'm at a one at one point in my life all the time, but yeah, I feel pretty good about my kids. Yote and Yana and Yvonne are all very good good people. A lot of people don't hear too much about uh, Yvonne, my youngest. She, you know, never was interested in hunting, but right now, she, for the last I don't know eight or ten years, she's been a nine one one dispatcher, and I at one point I kind of helped. Uh, get a, a gal having an epileptic seizure going, and I could, from that, I could feel, you know, the rewards of helping someone, you know, or helping save their life or whatever. And so I asked my daughter, and this has been four or five years ago, how many, you know, people do you feel that she has helped save their life? She says, I don't know, matter of fact, like, she'd only been doing it five or six years. I says, oh, Oh, 200, 300, something like that. <laughs> that yeah, makes me proud. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's definitely very rewarding. So um, you've been uh, bow hunting since you're 12, really no no let up on huh, out in the great state of Montana? Yeah, pretty much. You know, the, I've been let up pretty here again. I, this is another thing. I probably took up bow hunting. One of those things I liked about bow hunting is I'd shoot the animal, it had run off, and then I'd go find it dead. I hated watching animals die, if you know what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> that's one of the reasons I liked it. But, you know, I've had a lot of success. And, and you know, there's the, the whole doll sheep thing. That was kind of the holy grail. But um, at well, this point, I don't care. I would much rather, like, we had a couple people from New Zealand showed up. And they had were guiding with Yodi, and we got them shooting a couple of bows, and they spent two days playing with those bows and so excited about it and hunting chamois and tar and having us come over there and stuff. And for me to go over there and see that, that gal shoot a tar or something like that would be way, way more rewarding than me shooting one, if you know what I mean. And, sure. and that's Once you get older, your bloodlust kind of goes down and stuff, but... I don't know. Can, I gotta, I'm going to go sheep hunting a gun next year, and and I'm going to try and get it up for that. Can we uh, can we talk a little bit about that sheep hunting? Yeah, sure. I love talking about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess when Yodi went to Alaska when he was ten years old with his grandparents in a motorhome, you know, he ended up like right out of high school. 17 years old, graduated on a Saturday. On a Sunday, he was on his way to go work for Martha Massey, Jay Massey's wife, at a, a place up there. So he fell in love with Alaska right then. And then I liked the sheep, the doll sheep and stuff. And at one point, there was a bunch of guys from Montana around that were going to Northwest Territories and hunting with, I think it was Nahani Butte. And you could do it cheap, like two or $3,000. And my wife even said, yeah, well, I'd really like to have one of them on the wall. <laughs> but, you know, here again, I had three kids, and I didn't feel I could justify it. But the, when Jay Massey was passing away, 
20 years ago. I went up there and I met Denny Diger. And Denny was uh, the guide who Jay got his guide license through. And, of course, we, you know, got a bond there. And shortly thereafter, uh, Denny calls up and says, why don't you guys, you and Yoke come sheep hunting with me? Yoke wasn't a resident there at that time. And it took us a year or two to get there, but we did. And uh, saw some sheep, didn't see a legal ram. And then Yoke got to be a resident and went back a couple years later. Same area, saw lots of sheep, didn't see a legal ram. And then Jay and, well, Doug Borland was talking to Yote, and he said, you know, me and Jay went to that spot in the Brooks Range 30 years and got a go, and we've been trying to get back there a couple times, never met it back. I need to take you in there and show it to you because it needs to go, you know, we need to pass it on. And, of course, we jumped at it, and I think that was seven years ago, and they hadn't been in there. 30 year, 31 years ago, they had went in and each killed a ram, and then 30 years ago, Doug had went back in and killed a ram. So me and Yoda going in there, and I had built for that other sheep hunt uh, a sinew-backed 58-inch, 58-pound uh, reeker, pretty good steam bent. I got the wood from... Um, Friend of mine in Kansas, Steve Meyer. Kansas has got the most beautiful Osage I've ever seen. And uh, he had went on a sheep hunt with us to Siberia. Here again, this was before. This is when I was doing the Siberia trips in the early 90s. And so I got the wood from him. The sinew I put on this bow was from two Idaho moose that were killed by uh, Larry Fisher, a traditional bow hunter, and his son Jake. And uh, the guy that kind of helped me steam Bennett, Justin Deacons, probably is one of the best flint nappers in the world. Uh, anyway, I, I kind of build a lot of spirit, and I don't know how to say it, but mojo, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> I had sheep horn all over the shop, you know, and I'd touch them, and I would think about it, and... I would have, you know, you, you, let's face it. Okay, if you guys are married or had a girlfriend or whatever, you had to think about having that girlfriend and think about how nice it would be and stuff like that. You have to think about things to get them, and you have to talk about things to get them. And so, normally, naturally, I'm thinking about talking about touching it. <laughs> but, you know, my whole emphasis was Yoke, and I'm thinking, man, I hope Yoke gets a sheep, then maybe he'll come back and take over the bull business and my life will be a hell of a lot easier, you know. <laughs> so I'm main concerned about him, but we ended up going up there, and we saw lots of sheep right off the bat. Um, the first day, Yoke looked across the canyon and saw five rams like right underneath the snow level. And so we made plans to go up there the next day, me and Yoke, and we got up there, and these rams were kind of bedded right at the snow level. And so you had to gain about 2,000 feet in elevation, which took, takes you, you know, 1,000 feet an hour about. And so we get up there. Well, the dang things had crossed and went across the valley where there wasn't – the snow had melted off already. And uh, so, Yotes, you know, you go after him, Dad. You go after him. Well, I'm pretty played out. And I said, you go after him. So he's got to drop down 2,000 feet, get in the bottom so they don't see him, come back up that 2,000 feet. Well, it's cold. I ended up 
<laughs> having my feet stuck in uh, waterproof bags, <laughs> and I'm just shivered and shaking, waiting for him to show up. And anyway, I got to watch through the spotting scope him stock up and shoot that ram and watch it die. And when we came together and I ran down that mountain and hooked up, it was the greatest euphoria you could imagine. You know, this is a dream he'd had since he was 10. And if you're a father, you know what I'm talking about. When, yep. you, when your son or daughter's accomplished something they've been looking forward to. And it's like, man, that made our hunt, okay? And so I'm not so worried about getting one. And uh, Doug, you know, he... He had an opportunity to stock or two, and then we got another big snowstorm moved in, and it, it's like we got to start thinking about going downriver, you know, because we only had one or two days left, and we made up our mind that we were going to head downriver the next day. We weren't going to go hunt the rams that we had seen and knew were there around the corner, like five or six miles away. We were just going to hunt our way out because of the weather. <clears throat> Well, you know, we were resigned to that, and I thought it was a pretty good deal. And I thought, well, I'm going to go up and, you know, just uh, walk up the hill with a little bit to snow line or whatever, see what I can see. And I go up there, and you can, I can see right where Jay Massey had killed this ram 31 years ago. And I'm thinking about Jay, you know, and things we did together and stuff. And after I, Jay had invited me up moose hunting in like 92 or three or something like that. And when we got done, we went to McGrath and we went to like a cafe bar and had a hamburger. Well, Jay was the greatest guy in the world. He would talk to everyone and, you know, real friendly and stuff. Well, he'd been talking to these Athabascan women and they were wishing they'd bring him the tongue and stuff like that. And anyway, we got done with our hamburger and we're going over to meet the plane and we get out the door, and Jay reaches in his pocket and brings out this little note. I said, what you got there? He says, well, that gal handed me this note. And the note said, strike while the iron is hot. <laughs> and, you know, she was referring to, hey, Jay, could, you know, come on back here, boy. <laughs> and so I thought, you know what? This is kind of an epiphany. We're, we should strike while the iron is hot. We should stay another damn day and try and make it around the corner and up to where those sheep were, you know. And so I come down, and I'm all excited, and the whole mood of the camp changes and stuff. And little sidebar here, when my dad died, Don Thomas got up and talked about my dad and talked about the raven and the totem pole and how the raven was the trickster. And so every time a damn raven flies over, I think about my dad. <laughs> all of a sudden, the raven flies over. And Doug says, God, that's odd. You know, I've never seen a raven up here before. They're real rare up here. And we sat around there a little longer, and here come another old tattered, completely different raven. And you can say what you want or believe what you want, but in my crazy mind, I'm thinking <laughs> one of those is my dad and the other one is Jay. Okay? That's awesome. So I got to relieve myself, and I go out of camp there, certainly out there, and I'm walking back to camp, and I look up at a spot that I felt was a salt lick or a slip or whatever, and I see a white thing up there. And I yelled back to those guys. I said, you better check out that, that sheep up there. And Yote looks up and says, I think it's a you. And uh, with the binoculars, and, and Doug looks up at his binoculars, ah, I think it's a lamb. But I'll go get the spot and scope. So Doug gets the spot and scope out there. And they says, 
It's Argali. They were calling this ram Argali, right? Because <laughs> <laughs> it's got a cor- curl and a quarter, you know, and it's just right above camp, which, you know, you act like, you know, it's not very much of a hike, but it is. <laughs> but anyway, I they, Doug and Yo philosophize all the time. I mean, they're always talking about, theorizing about how to hunt sheep this way or hunt sheep that way or you know, it just, they talk, talk, talk all the time. And so they're talk, talk, talking. Doug's saying, I think we should watch him, see where he goes, and then your dad can make a stock on him. And Yote's saying, well, I think dad should go or whatever. Well, the whole time I'm getting my shit together and I'm gone. You know, I'm I'm going up there. I'd picked a spot on the side of that mountain that I thought I went to where the mountain kind of eclipsed. And I thought that would be a rocky outcropping. And, I mean, I'm humping it. I'm sweating like crazy. And I get up there, and those guys are, you know, we got some hand signals worked out. And those guys are down there and stuff. And I get to where I want to be, and I'm looking, and they're flapping like their wings. You know, they're flapping like whatever. I thought it was like the ram flew the coop. (laughs) But what they were saying was, get down. And so I, anyway, I didn't know that, but I peeked up, and here about 35 yards ago, wait, here's this ram. He quit on that salt lick and come a couple hundred yards towards me. And the whole time them guys had been watching him and I'd watch back at them and times they'd get up and walk around camp. And it's like, what are you doing? You scan the Ram. <laughs> well, when they would do that, the Ram would slow down. Mm-hmm. So they were slowing this Ram down while I was going up the mountain and, uh, there's nobody knows any of this is going on or I don't anyway. And so I go up, get up there and that Ram just starts coming at me a little bit frontal. But where I'm at, it's like there's a cliff. It's it's like he's got to come more, even more frontal. And I spazzed the shot at about 14 yards, and I shot a little bit low, and it ended up breaking the off hind leg. And it knocked the ram down. And the ram went rolling off this cliff and over the hill. Well... I got this beaver or otter skin quiver of an otter my son had trapped. You know, here part of the magic and stuff. <laughs> and for keeping things dry, it's got a, you know, the tail kind of flaps over it, but it makes it hard to get an arrow out. Well, in my haste, I hadn't, you know, got the ha- the tail down, which I'd be in hunting mode. And so I'm having to get that tail out of the air and get another arrow out. And instead of swinging left, uh, let's see, right to left, which is easy for a right-hander, I got to swing right to left, and I fling this arrow up in there. And this ram is at least 50 yards away, running as fast as a three-legged ram can run, which is pretty fast. And that arrow looks like it's coming out of a spine for a bow 50 pounds different. It's just corkscrewing out through the air, and it plunks in right behind that. Right at their last rib, goes down and pierces the heart. Oh, wow. 50 yards running. <laughs> I think I had a little help shooting that. Wow, that's awesome. <laughs> I think Jay was helping me out anyway. It's all that good mojo for sure. Yeah. Here we are with two rams. Here we are with two rams. And a little sidebar to that, my good friend Tom Martini, who I call the medicine man, the whole time when he's talking about it and we're manifesting or whatever you want to call it, uh, he's talked about two rams and... I thought that was crazy. No way. And we got two rams. And, you know, I went around, get, did slideshows and stuff about it. And 
talked to a lot of people, and I said, there, uh, you'll never beat it. In, you know, two rams with longbows? Yeah. Or, you know, wood bows and wood arrows and stuff, and a father and son? And then finally this one guy comes up to me and says, oh, yeah, you could. You could do it with a grandson or a granddaughter. <laughs> <laughs> so I got to keep in shape and see if we can pull that off. Oh, that's awesome. That is super good. So were you guys, um, the Brooks range, so you fly in um, on a charter and then backpack from there? Is that kind of how you're doing it? You're talking about a river. You've, are you floating a river and hunting up from there? Well, we're flying in. It's uh, 350 miles north of Anchorage, so you're way up there. Mm-hmm. And uh, you just, you know, we're flying in on a river that a lot of people float. And then we, like, we've got a little raft where we float maybe down a little ways, or we might hook up a drainage or whatever. And then we, we've we always got at least a 20-mile hike to get there, but it's relatively flat. You know, it's only 2,000 uh, vertical feet yeah. from where we land to where we start hunting. And so it's not too bad a hump. And here again, if me and Yoda had been going in there, we'd do it in a day and a half, you know, easy, no problem. But we'd be sore, wore out and stuff. Well, Doug's a lot smarter than that. He taught us to go slow, so we take three days going in. Okay. And then you're kind of conditioned, and that mountain doesn't hurt as bad. But the way we've been hunting right now, we're climbing a minimum of 2,000 feet every day to 3,000. And uh, I don't know. I would opt for more of a spike camp up high, which... I don't know. Actually, I think the best way to go on a deal like that is everybody have their own one-man tent, mm-hmm. and that way you could do it, you know. Um, like we've took a Seek Outside tent the last couple times, which is nice lodge, you know. But I don't know. I just I like being more mobile where Doug probably likes coming more back to the same camp and having, you know, you guys are you guys are using the seek outside teepees with the little wood stoves or? Yeah, well, we don't take a stove. It'd be nice to have one up there, but we don't take a stove. Yeah, we're taking that, and uh, they just designed a pack. It's uh, seek outside. I think it's a Brooks seventy four hundred, and it's. I had a lot of I think input that you know none of their packs were big enough for me. And that thing's great. I mean, I can't believe it. It's uh, my Osprey pack. I ain't into designer packs. I don't like no camouflage or anything. <laughs> and my Osprey pack was about the lightest you could find. It was about six pounds empty, mm-hmm. where a lot of those other packs are, you know, pretty dang heavy. Uh, but this thing, I think, is maybe two pounds. I have wow. not used it, but next year we will. But I'm pretty excited about it. You know, Yote looked at it, and he was real excited about it. He wants one, too, so... And so Yote's been up there uh, guiding and, and hunting for some time now. Is that is that correct? Yeah. He initially started guiding for Ernie Holland, who took out over Jay Massey's Moose John. And I would say maybe he was like 20 when he did that. So he's almost got 20 years guide experience, um, primarily brown bears. I would say he's probably got 40 brown bears and moose uh you know not too much bow hunting he's got his own you know he could book his own hunters but he just primarily uh works for other outfitters um i don't know 
just easier. Yeah, I see. But is no, he getting he, a? Is he getting a chance to do any hunts himself up there? Well, sheep hunting, he won't guide sheep. Uh, yeah, he's got a he's got a sixty-eight inch moose that I'm not really into record books, but you, I think Boone Crockett has like your regular Boone Crockett, and then you got like an all-time one. It would make that all-time. It's a big sucker. Wow. Um, he's got a couple grizzlies, nothing big. But he has spent a lot of time guiding other people. He he enjoys that, and, you know, when you come right down to it, the guy driving the boat's the one catching the fish, and the guide's kind of the one, you know, killing the game. Yeah, right. For sure. <laughs> so uh, how, has he, how many uh, sheep has he taken since then? Well, this is the thing that I'll never be done. Um, <laughs> in three years, he got... Three full curl doll rams with a long bow. Wow! In three of yours. Yeah, that's that's impressive. But now there's the, Doug Borland. You know he got one uh, here a couple years ago, and so he's up to three rams. And then Yotes' best friend, um, oh god, Joe Stallmaster. Um, he's got three. He's w- went with us and got two. Of them trips too. He's a dentist out of um, Dillingham there, and a real good friend. And they grew up together. Ray Stallmaster went to Siberia with me hunting grizzly bear, and Joe is Yotes' best friend and stuff. So there's three of them. Got three. Uh, Yotes are the only, all with the longbow. Joe's are all with the longbow. I think Doug got one with a recurve. But uh, anyway, yeah, it's he's those two guys. I'll just throw them together. Treat them both like my sons are, in my opinion, the best outdoorsmen I've ever been with. I mean, Yote spends there for a lot of time. He would spend 150 to 200 days a year out in the field, you know, hunting. Or, wow. You know, you'd hunt spring bears early, and and then in the summer he's, he's fishing, but, you know, he's out sleeping in a tent somewhere. So they're pretty attuned to what's going on in the woods. Is uh no sheep, you know, I mean, like, if you read that stuff from Jack O'Connor and all them guys about how tough they are to hunt, they are like the perfect bow hunting animal. Number one, they got a wolf range, which is within my range, kind of on the far end of it. But they're, so, they're, the predators, you know, a grizzly bear ain't going to run one down, a wolf ain't going to run one down, uh, you know, unless it's in winter or something. They don't look up. I mean, they get their head down feeding. You get above them. They're they're pretty dang stockable. Um, the whole thing is the terrain they live in is what's tough, and then finding a place where they're not all shot out, you know, from the guides and outfitters. Which we're in Anwar, which is Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, which not as many outfitters or guides can hunt, uh, but we still have to deal with airplane jockeys uh, every year. You know, we have these guys will fly around punch their location on a GPS, the biggest ram in, in this valley or that valley, and then they'll fly up and down the river and look for about a 50-yard-long strip to land, and then they'll land there. <coughs> and, you know, that might be 11 o'clock at night, and then at 3 o'clock the next morning they're they're out there hunting it, and then they'll shoot it that day, and then usually pack it out the next day, you know, with a rifle. And, you know, we have to deal with that every year. 
sure. which is kind of disgusting. But now they've made it. It's it's illegal to do that, you know, flying around business. And if you're on a hundred up there, make sure and somebody's doing something like that to film it because I took pictures and got you know numbers and all that, but I did not film it. And we got the game warden involved, but she couldn't do nothing. She said if I had filmed it, you know, then it, they could have pursued it. But backcountry hunters and outfitters, those guys up there, and some other guys in Alaska got together and you know kind of changed that to where they. They're not supposed to be spotting them from the air so much, which they weren't there anywhere because it is Anwar. It's like the only time you're supposed to get like 200 feet from the ground is when you're landing. So. Right. Anyway. So is is Doug Borland still hunting with trad equipment? Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. He's uh, like, I think he's going to be probably 72 next year. Wow. He is, uh, I don't know. He, he's an animal. I mean, he's. <laughs> tall and all that and you'd think he could you know outwalk me i can outwalk him on level ground i walk faster on level ground but when that pitch turns to 45 degrees and you're climbing a mountain he walks the same speed (laughs) (laughs) and he's got the heart to do it every day you know i'll say oh i'm gonna take the day off oh i'm gonna take the day off not climb the mountain i'm just you know relax up and stuff and he'll hang around till noon the next thing you know he's gone yeah yeah. He's a good guy. That's awesome. Yeah, that's... So you talked a little bit about your uh, trips to Siberia. Um, uh-huh. Maybe you could kind of go over that. I know I think I read an article, a couple articles maybe, in Traditional bow hunter back in the day. Sure. Uh, well, I think it was 93. It's like things had just barely opened up in, in Siberia, you know, to where the, the wall was torn down. I well, I think we were actually going to go the year that 92, when Saddam Insane invaded Karak, uh, mm-hmm. Kuwait. Anyway, we had scheduled to hunt. I was actually going with Paul Bruner, and we were going to go sheep hunting. And some other guys had already went over there. But when that happened, everything got put on hold because, you know, everything over there is military. And everything got put all on hold because that invasion had happened and stuff. And so we couldn't go, but uh, Paul Bruner ended up actually getting a stone sheep on that hunt, and Doug Borland ended up getting a moose. But anyway, I went the next spring, and it was a spring bear hunt, and of course, I don't know, Doug Borland could talk me into just about anything, you know, he was the (laughs) one that got me to go, and uh, we went over there, and... First of all, Tom Martini, my good friend, went with me. And Tom couldn't afford to go. You know, he had to go get a loan. Not that it cost that much back then. It was like three or four grand or whatever. He had to get a loan. So he goes into the doctor. <laughs> well, he just got both arms operated for carpal tunnel syndrome. So he's got them all band-aid up, okay? And he's going in there and asking the banker for a loan to go to Siberia and hunt bo- uh, grizzly bear with a bone arrow. <laughs> Oh, it was a good banker. He loaded the money. <laughs> <laughs> so it was pretty exciting. You know, I grew up in an area, in fact, when the uh, Soviets were putting those missiles in Cuba is when I just read Hunting with Bow and Arrow by Saxton Pope. It kind of spurred everything. And, you know, we were scared to hell of Russians. So all at this time, I'm scared of Russians or whatever. We get over there and we find out them Russians are, you know, they're good people. I mean, they they 
yelled and screamed and bitched about their government and and all that too. But you you know out in camp they were they were good people. Um, our target animal, of course, was grizzly bear, spring grizzly bear. Um, Tom ended up getting one. Don Thomas got one. Uh, Ray Stallmaster got one. Our guides were actually guys that had been sent to Siberia from Moscow or some of the other cities for dealing drugs or whatever. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> they were criminals, and they were um, martin trappers or sable trappers and knew the area well. They weren't guides, you know. But anyway, Doug Borland had put this all together by meeting up with a guy that was helping the Russians learn how to process their reindeer and make, you know, better stuff out of it, get more money. He had been over there. He was over there first, and then Doug went with him. Doug met these doctors, went on an outdoor trip, and all that with them. So that first year, and then, of course, that fall we went back. Uh, Greg Munther went, and I uh, went to go sheep hunt and climb this mountain and ended up finding this grizzly bear eating salonic, which is kind of like white bark pine, has real big... Um, are small pine cones, but you know a lot of fruit in them, and they just gobble them up, you know, and eat the seeds and and the husk and all. Anyway, this bear was doing that. I got this Russian with me, you know. We can't. I don't know what he's saying other than yes and no. And anyway, he's got an SKS with a full metal jacket of bullets. He's my backup guy, so I sneak up to this thing about 15 yards, and it's quartered away slightly, and. I angled it in there, you know, and I knew that, you know, I might, I probably only got one lung, but it was going to be a dead bear. Well, this thing only goes about 20 yards and flops over on its back and laying there, you know, like it was already done for. Well, this Russian is about 50 yards behind me, and he comes up, and the bear, you know, hears that and gets up and starts going. Well, then this guy puts his shell in the chamber, you know. He didn't even have a shell in the chamber when I was close. <laughs> so... Anyway, I, I said, Nit, you know, I don't want you to shoot this thing, put a bullet hole in it, it's going to die. And I took the blood trail a little sooner than I wanted and went into the brush. And, you know, this is all within 50 yards. It wasn't a big deal. But anyway, I get in there and about 10 yards away, here this grizzly bear standing up on its hind legs. And I'm thinking, oh, shit, you know. <laughs> and so I start to draw back. And when I did, it dropped down and actually was rolling down a rock slide dead as a doornail. Oh, and uh, so I had this Siberian grizzly bear, which it was like a six-year-old female, not real big, 350 pounds maybe at the most, but it was a dang grizzly bear. <laughs> and Greg Munther happened to be on another mountain kind of watching the whole thing. So he got to see me shoot this grizzly bear, and then they come over and uh, met up with us. So that was pretty cool. And then the last trip was uh, Yoda ended up going with us, and it was strictly a sheep hunting trip, but we ended up getting being guided by reindeer herders there, and they uh, had brought in like some, I don't know whether these guys were rich guys or what. I think they were rich guys because they had rifles with scopes, like high-powered, regular, you know, cartridge-type stuff. And anyway, it was like, it was you you get the ram any way you can you run them down with dogs they run them down with dogs little dogs that are about half the size of a shepherd huh. and and get them up in the rocks and they shoot the whole bunch you know wow. use rams ram and all that and you know that wasn't going over good and <laughs> i don't know at one point 
<laughs> they said something about American hunters were weak. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> interpretation, and we about had World War Three, but I worked my way through it. <laughs> and uh, But we finally got them to leave us alone, and I, the only thing I ever saw in that hunt was a, me and Yote saw a U that ran by, and then when we were flying out, we saw some pretty nice rams on this mountain called Elbi. And... Uh, but, you know, it was too late. We should have been hired. You know, I didn't know much about sheep hunting, but if you want to know something about sheep hunting, just look to get a topographical map and find the steepest, nastiest, remotest terrain, and you're going to find the ramps. That's, <laughs> that's where they live. That's the secret, huh? It's as simple as that. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Sounds like an adventure. They'll be using sure. lambs and stuff everywhere, but... You know, if you get in stuff that looks like mountain goat country, then that's where the rams usually are. Wow, that's that uh, sounds like uh, takes a lot of endurance, but a, a really good uh, adventure. Yeah, it don't take much. Anybody's grandma could do this stuff. <laughs> just just take your time, you know. Right. So oh, it ain't special. So uh, out there, in Montana, I know you guys have a, a a pretty liberal season and a lot of game. Um, this time of year, are you uh, pursuing mule deer or whitetail? Or, well, I am. You know, the season we're right between bow season and rifle season. Which during rifle season, I will bow hunt deer, and I can actually bow hunt cow elk too. But Montana has changed pretty dramatically in my time. You know, in 1969, I think there was a guy named Allen that invented this contraption that kind of led to the demise of bow hunting, in my opinion. Um, you know, prior to that time, a bow hunter was someone that had had a lot of experience, usually hunting, and went to the bow for more challenge, or they had a love of the sport, you know, the romance of it. Uh, they liked bows and arrows and went to it. And then once that thing got in there, it made it, you know, open to everybody. Uh, Alan had designed it for women and children, but, you know, everybody took advantage of it. And as far as I'm concerned, it's still only for women and children. But (laughs) anyway, it it screwed things up. I mean, when I started, there was a thousand bow hunters. Things got pretty busy at 25,000 bow hunters in Montana. At 50,000 bow hunters, it's a mess. I, I, there's nowhere I know all, I've hunted all over Montana. There's nowhere I know that I could go and have a quality hunt on any public ground that, you know, <laughs> somebody else might not be there. And it's yeah. like on my place, I got a thousand acres I can hunt. And on all four sides, there's people waiting, you know, or hunting out there too with uh, a contraption. I mean, it, it's got bad. It's terrible. And it's sad to see, you know. And, yeah, a lot of people are making a lot of money off the deal. But the other thing, I, I don't know, you guys probably saw it, too. That I just got this thing, saw this thing on Facebook where there's a one of these new crossbows that kind of has the wheels and limbs parallel to the stock. And it says, you know, here's your next rifle. <laughs> I mean... 
And, and we're to blame. We're to blame for it. I mean, I was loud and outspoken and, you know, tried to get either or. We mm -hmm. got bow hunter Ed. You know, we did different things to quell the tide. But the traditional bow hunters never united. Yeah. The, you know, Pope and Young Club was there. And, you know, that was fine for those guys. But they never pursued trying to ha have any halt to it. The the PBS was, I mean, the PBS started, you know, I think, to try and help get keep old Fred Bear from getting the pod in. And that was probably their first challenge. And then they went up to where the actual Pope and Young guideline restrictions that were implemented came from the PBS, Professional Bowhunter Society. But, uh, and then Fred Asbell took it over. He was president at the time. He took it over to the... Pope and Young, and then they got that implemented. And of course, it, over the years, it got all washed off. You know, it was supposed to be 65%, it went to 85 and you guys, I don't know how familiar with the history of it, but it, it's gone. It's, there's no restrictions or anything goes pretty much. But even my fellow traditional hardcore bow hunting guys are just too politically correct. I mean, I mean, a fly fisherman doesn't have any problem standing up and wanting to stretch a stream made, you know, catching for release only to improve it. Yeah. But a traditional bow hunter to stand up and say, we want our own season or something like that, it's like blasphemy. You can't do that. I got a friend that used a compound. Yeah. Well, your friend's a wimp. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Yeah. And, you know. Be a bow hunter. Shit, I'm hunting elk with a 43-pounder and going to probably kill one. Yeah. Anybody hold 43 pounds? Yeah, I love it. Yeah, and in Oregon, see, we have we have a couple traditional only seasons and and that's a big part of why, you know, I agreed to start helping James with this is cuz I mean, I think I feel like if we don't start going that way, you know, we're just we're losing more and more opportunities. Look at all the states that have lost it to the crossbow. And there's no difference between a crossbow and a compound. Yeah. I think the comp more accurate. You know, yeah, a compound, can, you know, to shoot a crossbow good, you're going to have to have a rest like you would with a 30-30. And what I'd really like to see is somebody with a long bow shoot, somebody with a recurve shoot, somebody with a compound shoot, and somebody with a 30-30 shoot, like at 100 yards. I almost guarantee you that compound guy's going to be the best shot. You know, he's going to beat the crossbow guy. And all of these seasons, here again, I don't know you guys well enough, but all of these seasons were brought about by guys that were dedicated traditional bars. Right. Like in Montana here, uh, Bob Savage, you know, he would go before commission all by himself and help get it done. And a couple guys, other guys were doing it. And then we formed the Montana Bowhunters. These are all traditional guys. I hope some of these guys listen to Trump and get a little less politically correct and, <laughs> you know, start standing up to where their sons and daughters can actually have a halfway decent experience in the woods. Yeah. I mean, if you hunt the breaks where I started when I was 12, you're not, you're, you're, you're almost figuring the people as much as the elk. Yeah. Because all of those elk have people after them. And you have to, you know, oh, if that guy goes down that ridge, where are them elk going to end up, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's not the way. That's not why you get into bow hunting, for sure. Well, it's not for me. I mean, other people that are getting in now are having a good time don't know, and I guess that's fine. But And I, know, I realize we're not going to ever get the good old days back, but I sure had a lot of fun in them. <laughs> yeah, for sure. 
So are you still actively building bows? Oh, yeah, yeah. I've been active. Let's see. Next year will be 40 years, and there's not a bow out there that I haven't had something to do with the building of. Uh, You know, me and Yote have built a hell of a lot of them totally together. At times, I've had some other people come in and work for me. Uh, But pretty much, you know, if there's finish sprayed on it or whatever, most of the finish work is done pretty much all by me. Now, with that being said, I've been trying to get Yote to kind of take over more and... He's probably going to be in charge here in the near future. Um, I'm still probably going to keep building bows, but I don't need the everyday headaches of, you know, whether we can afford fiberglass next week or not. (laughs) (laughs) I want to pass that on to someone. (laughs) I just see myself, you know, I like to design bows. Like right now, I'm working on a new one. I've been I made this wolfer, and then I made the Yodi designed the koi wolf, which has kind of got an offset handle. Well, now I'm making that in a three-piece takedown and shortening up. The, it's kind of like a minimalist. I don't know. I'd like to find a word that kind of is like minimalist because it's going to be super lightweight, super compact, super strong, and you know, kind of designed for totally backcountry hunting, but uh takedown rather than a two-piece or one-piece or it's a three-piece i say rather than a two-piece so i've been having fun doing that so this is going to be like a more compact version of the wolfer well it'll be like the the fatal stick which is our three-piece bow but yes it would the idea is to try and get it to look like a wolfer as much as possible i'm having you know like uh, the laminations on the back of the handle will flow into the glass on the limb and kind of match, which nobody's really, it's going to be different than anything out there. And it's going to look crooked. <laughs> <Cool. laughs> uh, speaking of bows, we had uh, Jim Akison on a few weeks ago, and he was talking about the, the sheep eater Indians, you know, up there where he was living in the wilderness for 20 years and their bows, and we, we had some questions on him, and he said that he never really attempted it, but he also mentioned you, that you and uh, your son had tried to make, or had make made some replicas. Can you kind of explain that to us? Because we're super fascinated when we were doing that interview with him. Yeah, well, when I started making bows, there was a guy in, in the Bitterroot up at Darby named Jack Mackey, and he was kind of a, a Native American nut, and he actually built one, and I kind of watched him do it through the process. And this guy was such a craftsman that when he come up, I mean, he couldn't string the thing. It was the shape of a C, you know. And it took him two years, and he had made the string, but he couldn't string it himself, so he brought it up there. And when we strung that thing up, it, number one, lined up perfectly in tiller. And, I mean, it was, like, unreal. I mean, like, how did he do that? And... <laughs> I never, ever had that desire. It was just too much work and stuff. But here about four or five years ago, Yote kind of got an itch to do it. And uh, <laughs> we've made he's made progress. He's got the thing, you know, to where it's uh, flattened out and stuff. But, like, the curvature, you have to flatten it out, plus you have to take the bend or the curl out of it. And getting that curl totally out of it is a little tough. And, you know, here again, without having a, 
being here full time, he would come home and he worked on it one winter. But I think now he'll probably work on it again this winter. Um, but it's a hell of a task. Uh, I really think Yote needs to go down and talk to Jack Mackey while he's still alive because Jack has made several of them, shot some game with him. He's got sheep and elk and, you know, these wow. things are like, that one he made was like 39 inches long. It was, really? You know, it was really, yeah. But it is, it's one of those things that is so tough to get that ram horn cut out in the curl that what Yodi did was he drilled a whole bunch of holes and then, you know, cut them with a saw to get it out and around in that. Because if you try and do it with a bandsaw, you break your bandsaw blades. And it's really tough. And and to go through the process of flattening it out, straightening that out, and thinning it down. I mean, it's been a nightmare. A lot of time and effort he's got into that thing. And I look at that and I think, how in the heck could an Indian ever done that? <laughs> I just can't imagine how they did it. I, I it just amazes me because I think they had to have had done it after we they've got some metal tools. I mean, I just like a rasp or something. I just yeah. don't see how they could do it. Well, that's super did. cool. I can't wait to see when he when he gets it done. Sure. Yeah, we also have a bow that's kind of an Asian bow that Jay Massey started that we need to finish. That's got a a horn back and then the sinew belly that's uh Asiatic buffalo horn. Wow. When, well, Jay's wife gave it to us, and we need to finish that thing up. I would actually, before next year, like to finish that up and take it on the sheep hunt. Oh, that'd be awesome. Yeah, oh, that'd be that'd super be cool. Challenge. <laughs> so uh, I know talking about your uh, wolfer bow, you, you're a big proponent of instinctive shooting. That's pretty much how you and your son shoot. Yeah, it's whatever works for you. You know, it's just the way I learned. I pretty much shoot a Howard Hill style. Um, it's probably more static style, straight up and down and stuff, till I met John Schultz and hung around him. He lived in Hamilton and built bows for Howard Hill Archery. And he was, at the time, the only guy that was probably around that would have been taught to build bows by Howard Hill. And he learned the Howard Hill style. So I guess you would say, I shoot the Howard Hill style. But... It's one of those deals where if you ask me if I got the full draw on any of these animals I killed, I'd go, oh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> sometimes I did, sometimes I didn't. And uh, so that's the style I shoot. Yote shoots three under, so he's actually got to be using that arrow. He's aware of it. And here again, when you talk about somebody shooting instinctive, and they, if, if they think they're doing it totally instinctive, put them in a totally black room and put a little, like, a red dot up there 20 yards away and see how good they shoot. Yeah. Now, if they shoot good, I'll believe them. But most <laughs> of us, most all of us have that bow, that hand, everything as a reference. Yeah. You know what I mean? In, it's intuitive. Yeah. 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 And I can do some shit that, like that sheep shot. I mean, I've done that on antelope. I've done it on other animals. You know, that was the greatest, of course, but... You know, sometimes you guys have done it, too. You know, there's a little knot you want to shoot through or something, and you pull it off. And it's when you've totally let go, and it's like that spirit part of you is taking over. Yeah, it's it's ma it's magic, you know, like when that When happens. you can get to the point, well, that's, that's the best for hunting. But, you know, some well, of these guys, more static style and all that, do really good. So I'm not well, going to be just that way either. 
Well, I still think uh, shooting a stick bow wow. is mad magic. So it feels yeah. like magic every time I let an arrow go and it hits where I'm looking. Well, good. <laughs> oh, the other thing, let me tell you this one. The last, well, I've twice I've done this. I've screwed up my rotator cuff by pu- trying to pull compound bows. <laughs> and I ain't tough enough to pull a compound bow, I'll tell you that right now. That's why I hate them, I guess. <laughs> Actually, Dan, I'd been shooting a 78-pound self-bow, and Dan Moore out of Montana was just, had this compound, and he wanted to shoot my bow, so I let him, and he pulled it back about 20 inches and handed me his compound, you know, and I tried to break it over. I don't know what it was, and I couldn't do it. And so then I tried again, and I kind of screwed up my rotator cuff. That was 20 years ago. It healed up, no big deal. Well, we were having a uh, local archery gathering, and I did the same thing on about a 55-pounder. And so that started to wear when I get to about two-thirds draw, it start hurting, and I'd stop. And it got to where I could not pull past two-thirds of draw for the last year or two. I could not do it physically. I mean, it's no problem physically, but mentally I couldn't do it. didn't matter what the bow was. And so everybody says, well, I'll do the clicker, do this and stuff. And I got a clicker, and it's, you got to get the thing to where it clicks. You know, <laughs> I couldn't get it to where it clicks. And I thought, what the hell am I going to do? And all of a sudden I thought, well, I got to change something up here. And you know what I'm doing now? I'm doing one, which is draw, two, which is anchor, and three, release. And I'm getting my shit together. <laughs> and, and it's coming back, you know. So I don't know. Maybe it'll work for somebody else. Yeah, that's cool. It's It's cool to talk to, you know, since we started doing this. That's the the beauty of traditional archery, I guess, is you're always trying to improve or always trying to master it, and you never are. I mean, even even talking to to the legendary Dick Robertson, he still struggles with things. So that's that's part of it. Oh, I didn't I didn't even buy a sheep tag last year to when I was in Alaska because I I didn't feel I was shooting well enough. I haven't you know really shot elk much this or hunted as much as I would this year because of it. But like I say, I've about got it over. But like me and Yote and those two New Zealand guys, girl, guy and girl, went out. And where I was in that situation, I started doing it again. I really had to force myself to get back to counting. So yeah, I don't know. But I, I think it's, I'm going to lick it. And I think I'm going to shoot better than I ever have. Heck, yeah. Because I know I'm going to get into full draw. <laughs> That's awesome. I think we all have those uh, demons that creep in every once in a while with, with target panic. And I know I have. And and like you said, you just have to uh, to mind over matter. And, and you just got to whip, whip it out and, and make it happen. Yeah. Is there anything that uh, you want? Any more questions you got, James? Or anything you want him to bring up my question was was uh if if yote was was done in alaska and if he was coming back to montana to take over the bow business does that sound like that is the future plans for robertson stick bows what i think what the plan is is he's going to continue doing the high pay short periods of time like he, he's got a gig for fishing in uh what is it may or june june i think for three weeks he'll probably go and I think he's going to probably keep guiding. Uh, he wants to keep his residency. I want him to keep his residency. The only <laughs> reason I can go sheep hunting is I can go as his son, and him being, you know, a Alaska resident, I don't have to buy um, pay for a guide. So I want him to keep the residency. So 
We don't know. We're just in kind of the discussing stage of it right now. I've guess I've wanted him to do it for a long time, but now he's really expressing an interest, and I think it's going to be ran, you know, probably more a little bit for business, where I'd give away every ball if I could. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I never, you know, tried to make more than I could make. Um, and it, it needs to be run a little bit more like a business, I guess, at this point, because there's a lot of competition out there, a ton of competition. Yeah. I don't advertise, you know, I haven't had a brochure in 20 years and I've stayed busy, but he probably needs, you know, he needs to do that because he's got, you know, things he wants to do. I got to, I'm, I'm just wondering what the heck I'm going to do next, <laughs> um, but I'm going to keep building bows. I like building bows. Hopefully I'll get to build more self bows. Yeah. Um, that, 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 uh, Montana, what was that called? The Montana Jamboree or uh, what would you get? Yeah, that that looked like it was a lot of fun. Uh, one of my friends uh, attended there, Carson Brown. He said it was uh, a ton of fun. Yeah, I met Carson there. I had met his dad before, you, know, but I didn't, you know, put two and two together. But you know, I not only liked his dad real well. It was really fun to see Carson there. And I'll tell you what, the bow I admired the most he made, which was a U bow that was rather wide, and he kind of sculpted it out the belly. Oh, I love that. I, that's one of my favorite bows in the world. That is such yeah, that, a cool bow. Was, I mean, it, it blew me away. So, yeah, yeah Carson, he's a cool guy. Yeah, he's a, he's a good friend of mine. I, uh, I, me and him did some elk hunting together this year, and he, we're uh, all going on an Idaho, Idaho whitetail hunt here soon. And, um, yeah, he's a super good guy. Cool. Yeah, he had a little bow building class or something, I think, here just recently. And that's good to see, too, because... Let me tell you another this brief thing on that. When the, well, we started first. We had the North American Longbow Safari, and then the Great Lakes Longbow Invitational started. And we were only a couple, three years into that Great Lakes one. And me and Jay had talked about self bows. Well, I built a little short Indian bow that was like 42, 43 inches long, sinew backed it, that was patterned after a bow that was in the Big Hole Battle when the Nez Pierce fled, you know, and and was recovered there in the big hole, and it belonged to an Indian named Five Fogs, and me and Jay had went there and seen this bow. I kind of built it and patterned it after it. And then Jay built a kind of a 60-inch sinew-backed wider bow, and we brought them to the Great Lakes Longbow Invitational, I'm going to say 85, something like that. Uh, I'm not real sure on that, 85, maybe a little bit later. That was the first time anybody had even seen any self bows. And now look at it. You've yeah. Got, I mean, they had 1,500 people at the old jam in Oklahoma, you know, building, you know, building and helping and stuff. 1,500 people. Yeah, that's and super it, cool. It's just, it wasn't just bow hunters. It's people in love with the bow. Yeah, for it sure. I'm cool. uh, Carson's been doing like four classes a year. I'm gonna actually uh, build my first self bow uh, under his instruction in January. Well, there's an old Chinese proverb too that the longer it takes to open the box, the greater the reward inside. But so that's why I've always tried to make it harder and harder all the way along the way to where when I actually killed something, it was you know a greater reward. And you know I've killed five or six animals with stone points and. Lots of animals with, and they're way better than anything I did with the laminated, you know? 
Yeah. yeah, that's super cool. And I saw your daughter, uh, she attended that also and built uh, a self-bow, uh, Yana, correct? Yeah, that's really cool because um, Ralph Renfro, Renfro, he's from Kansas, but he was at the Oklahoma Bow Jam thing. And I've known him for 30 years, at least 35 maybe. Anyway, he's about the best, one of the best guys down there for building bows. And she, so I got her to go and start with him doing it and she was doing it with a stave that gary davis who is well known back east for self bows and fine self bow years years ago gave me this stave and it was the crookedest thing that i didn't think i could make a bow out of it so i've had it around here for at least 25 years i took it there anyway those guys are better than me more knowledge so i says you know have them do it and you know it just works out good yana's very personable and stuff and so uh, everybody ended up helping her along the way, a whole bunch of them, and got it to where she was pretty close to done. And then Jim Rimp helped her at home in Missoula and got it to where she could shoot it, but he felt we should send you back it. So we sent you back it here about three weeks ago. And Yana could pull it and shoot it. Uh, before we did it, it was, I'm going to say, 50 pounds. Well, I'd say right now it's at least 70. Oh, yeah. I mean, she hasn't haven't came back and we haven't worked it down, but she's, she's going to be here Monday, so we'll probably finish it up and get it to where she can pull it and hopefully go kill a deer with it. Oh, uh, that'd be cool. It would be. It would be. But great bunch of guys. I can't. I looked more forward to that Montana bow jam this year than I have to any kind of archery gathering in 30 years. And it was worth it. Uh, that's awesome. We're going to have to attend one of those. It looked like it was definitely a good time. It is. And, uh, you know, the people that just start out doing it and not knowing what the hell they're doing and end up the smile and, and grin on their face when they're done, you know, and actually have a bow they can shoot. It's pretty cool. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I did a John Strunk class a few years ago. And, and <clears throat> you know, just talking about the woodsmanship and stuff, you know, I mean, now I go out in the woods when I'm hunting around and I'll be like, oh man, that's a nice bow. That's a nice yew tree. There's ocean spray. You know, it just gives you a totally different look where, you know, as before you never even saw that because you didn't know, you know. There's a bow in every tree. It just takes the bow year to release it. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. I like that. That's a good way to... to Right. I'm pretty sure it's, uh, it might be Maurice Thompson on that one. I don't know. It's yeah. one of those good old guys, Saxon Pope, Maurice Thompson, or one of them guys. It's a quote that, you know, just sitting there waiting for the bow year to release it. And you better damn well try pay attention to the tree. You know, don't build it the way you want. Build it the way it wants. <laughs> awesome. 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 Well, thanks, Dick. We really appreciate it, man. Uh, maybe you could uh, tell everybody, you know, your your website and your store. I know you have stock bows. Uh, where they can get a hold of you if they want a bow made. Yeah, just robertsonstickbow.com. Awesome. That'd be it. I'm on Facebook. I Probably the most thing I do for advertising, which ain't much, but I do put some bows that I've just made on Facebook and some of the prettier ones. And people seem to enjoy seeing them. So, And then Yo just started doing thing something for the Robertson Stickbow uh, Facebook page. He's kind of taking a bow and, you know, kind of, filming it and stuff and we're going to start trying to do some more of that i just did a thing on um 
you know, proper care of recurves and how to straighten them and all that. Something I should have done 40 years ago. Okay. Did it when it was kind of windy out and need to do a retake on that. But it, it you know, it make it a lot easier. A lot of people think that if, if they go to a, a hardware store and there's this old bow in the corner that's got a twisted limb, it's got to be a wall hanger. Well, there ain't a bow out there you can't straighten the limbs on, and I kind of show them how and stuff. So we might try and do some more of that stuff. Awesome. Very cool. Well, we look forward to it, and we really appreciate your time, Dick. Appreciate everything you've done for the sport, for sure. Yeah, well, no problem. Thanks for having me on here, and, and you guys get out there and try and hang on to what we got or make it better. We're, nah, don't try and hang on to what we got. Try and make it better. That's what we're trying to do here. All right, guys, thanks for listening. That was a great interview with the legendary Dick Robertson. We had a lot of fun super good guy so make sure to subscribe to our podcast on uh, iTunes and Stitcher and Podbean and all those and don't forget to leave us a review and uh, yeah thanks for listening guys good luck out there